This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. I have been looking forward to today's episode, where we are discussing narrative, identity, meaning in sport, and creative qualitative research methods with Dr. Katrina Douglas. Katrina is a professor at the University of West London, a senior research fellow at Leeds Beckett University, and a visiting professor at the University of Coimbra. She has been one of the pioneers in the narrative study of athletes' lives, and this work is the focus of our conversation today. Her narrative typology of performance, discovery, and relational narratives of sport, developed together with Dr. David Carles, has been a foundation for a number of studies that have followed. Having played elite and professional golf for 20 years, Katrina has also published autoethnographic studies which provide insight on her own negotiations of personal and cultural meanings of sport and how to resist the dominant narratives about elite athletes that circulate in our culture. Katrina has also had an important contribution to advancing arts-based and creative qualitative research methodologies. In addition to journal articles and academic books, her work has been published in the form of films, documentaries, poems, songs, and stories. Welcome to the podcast, Katrina. It's really a pleasure for me to have this conversation. It's a pleasure to uh, see you and to get to have a conversation with you. It's been a long time in coming. <laughs> I'm, I'm aware of your work as well, and I, I'm, I'm very impressed, and I love the work that you do. So it's really nice to be able to chat to you. Yeah, it's it's really wonderful that we finally meet and we should have done this like a very long time ago already. And yeah, and when I said that your work has inspired and influenced the whole genre of studies of narrative identity in sport, that certainly includes my own work as well. So it has been a really big inspiration and a foundation for me to start developing my my work on that as well. And so I guess for us to get started, We haven't, in the podcast, we talked about various approaches to meaning in sport, like existentialism, stoicism, those philosophical approaches. But we haven't really talked a lot about narratives and narrative theory and narrative psychology and what that can offer us in terms of understanding personal meaning in sport and cultural meaning in sport and how those two interact. So maybe we can explore a little bit why is narrative theory that something that is appealing to you and that is inspiring you and informing your work? So, yeah, let's explore the background a bit. Yeah, I think to begin with, um, 
Like many psychologists and students, I was introduced into lots of theories. But a lot of the theories that I was reading about didn't make sense in my own life. So when I read the theory, yes, I felt that was fine. And when I read the research, yes, that was fine. But when I took that and applied it to my own life, it didn't fit. And when I looked at some of the women I knew who were playing golf or some of my other friends and colleagues who were playing sport, it's like, well, there's something missing here. And I particularly remember as a student in my undergraduate uh, degree course at Exeter University, sitting in a lecture theatre and we were looking at elite sport and the lecturer at the front quoted some very notable scholars and they said the, the professional athlete has such a narrow focus on winning, they can't be anything else. And I was sat there just the end. I've been playing professional sport all my life. And I, and I thought, how can you say that about me? How can you, how dare you say I can't be anything else? I can. There's loads of things I can be. And I was disempowered at that time because I didn't feel I could speak back to the lecturer. I didn't have a voice. I didn't know enough. So I was quiet. But the more I was introduced to narrative, it made sense. It made sense of the stories that I tell, the stories that I'm a part of, the tensions that I felt in my life. So what narrative gave me was a prism to understand my own life and the lives of people around me in a much more comprehensive way than other theories that I've been trying at the time. Yeah. And your work on these narrative types in elite sports, so you've certainly challenged this assumption that an elite athlete cannot be anything else than just somebody who is focused on performance. And I think that has had such a big impact on how we are conducting studies and we are looking at those ways that elite athletes also resist that kind of dominant cultural idea that that's what elite sport is about. So maybe just tell a little bit about the background of how you developed your your narrative typology. That is something that researchers after that, me including, have, have been drawing upon in their work. I, I think um, I went straight from an undergraduate study to do my PhD, and I was interested in what motivates elite athletes. And I had questions. When I was, and, you know, maybe you and your students, if we think about our own experiences and we have questions, we want a theory that helps us unpick those questions. So I would, I was aware that money was supposed to be everything, winning was supposed to be everything, that that's all people asked me about. But I was aware of other things in my life that I did and that were important to me, and nobody ever talked about them. So I'm kind of, well, why is that? They are important, but nobody's mentioning them. So I didn't have answers to these questions, but I started my PhD to try and understand the lives of other women in high performance sport. And I did life history interviews and a life history interview, for those of you that don't know, is you start with an open ended question, something like, what's your earliest memory? And then when somebody describes it to, the, to you, you say, OK, how did you get from there to where you are now? And they take you on a journey and you go with the journey. And when somebody tells you a story, there's lots of little, minute, small stories on the way. But often uh, there's an overarching trajectory of that particular life. 
And what I found with the women in high performance sport that I was interview, nearly all of them told a story where they would use the words, you have to give it everything. Um, if I don't perform, I feel lower about myself. It's like I'm letting everybody down. When I play badly, I get angry. I get moody. I don't think I'm moody, but my friends call me moody. And if you're going to if you're going to play sport, you have to be dedicated and you have to sacrifice. So I listened to these stories and I was amazed how similar they were. Yes, the individual life was different. And people would do different things, but often they would use those exact same words. You have to be dedicated. You have to be disciplined. You have to, and they would say, you have to be. And I remember one of the, my participants, she said, uh, I don't care who you are, but we all dream about holding the winning part and winning the trophy. And you have to be that way if you, if you want to get to the top in professional sport. But within my sample as well, I had other women whose, when they, I looked at their life trajectory, it was really different. And so the, the woman that we often use as an exa exemplar in our research is a woman called Candy. And I remember I met her, the first interview I did with her was three hours long. And we met at a tournament and we went out for lunch and we sat there and she didn't start her lunch. It was going cold and she was just talking telling me about her life and it was so different to the others she said when I was a kid my mother used to say Candy doesn't know how to walk I was always running to do 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 I'd run everywhere and I loved swimming and I liked being outside everything that you can do outside and then I had to play golf because my mother thought it was good and I didn't particularly like it but she said oh it's good for you it'll be a good career but I I didn't like it and the boys bullied me and then um, as I played more, I got better. So I got picked for teams and they said, oh, it'll be like swimming. You'll be going away for a trip. So you'll go to different places. So I thought, oh, yeah, I don't mind doing it then. So it wasn't about the winning. It was about discovering life and all the way through her life. What had been the central and overarching theme was what we call a discovery narrative. Yes, winning was important, but it's not the only thing. When she said, when I, um, when I lose an event, it's, it's not I'm any less, I, I lose my self-worth. No, I have less money. You know, if you're a butcher, you chop meat. If you sell it, you make some money. If you don't, you don't that week. That's the level of it. So her whole sense of self wasn't the golfer. But the women who told the performance narrative their very self, uh, one of them said, if you cut me open, you'll see golfer written in the middle. And so we began to get an idea that there were two parallel tracks to the top of the, the mountain. And then another one, another woman, uh, her story was all about who she went on the journey with. And so, yes, again, winning came into it because she was good but it was who she made the journey with and that her journey started with her father and they played sport together and she loved her dad and it was something that there was special between them so if she and her dad were doing it they had that relationship and the winning was a byproduct and this is somebody who was a multiple major tournament winner when she was 16 you know a phenomenal talent but she didn't particularly like playing golf she just liked the relationship and the setting so we've said that there are at least three that we know of different ways to get up the mountain. But the problem 
is that the performance narrative says it's the only one. <laughs> and so if you tell these other stories, you're silenced, devalued, and you're told you can't do it that way. And uh, I often use the um, Professor Fix Fricks from the Australian Institute of Sport a few, a few years ago on a BBC documentary. Speaking of the AIS, he said, no athlete comes in here without being totally committed to win, 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 win. That's what it's all about. So my question is, well, what if you're a discovery in a relational narrative and it's not about winning, but you're highly talented, you can play well and perform, you want to be on that squad. Do you have to tell a lie and hide your real self? And what damage does that do to you if you have to do that? Or if you say, actually, it's not the most important thing. Will the coach think, well, you're not dedicated, so I won't pick you. So there's lots of tension within which narrative uh, an individual athlete tells. And so that's what we've been trying to understand, how to allow people to have different voices and different experiences. And we've gone on to use that same model with lots of different sports, uh, rugby, football, cricket, uh, rowing, Olympic track and field. And it's the same Again, trajectory, there's lots of individual minute differences, but the same language of the performance narrative. And I have um, someone that was a PhD student uh, with me said he presented these three narratives to coaches in Olympic sport, and they didn't believe that you could be successful with the discovery in the relational narrative. And they said, well, they mustn't be very good players then. And you know, they were all they were all multiple major winners. They were all successful athletes. So there's something about the dominant narrative that uh, doesn't listen and doesn't expect. So it's a big challenge to shake that performance narrative. And there's one other sort of key issue um, that you're probably aware of, Nora. It's during retirement transition or injury we found the those that have the performance narrative have a much tougher time because when you've invested your whole self in sport one the crowd expect you to hurt if you lose so you have to perform they expect you to perform oh sad angry upset they don't expect you to be able to walk off and think, okay, I'm going to go and see my kid now and you know, go out for ice creams. So you're expected to perform. And so uh, as you go on that journey, especially if you've been in sport from you know, a very young age, you learn a way of behaving that can be self-harming. <laughs> you harm yourself when you have a bad, a bad performance. You're supposed to, to, to hurt. So you begin hurting. That's what the culture demands. And then if you get a bad injury and you have to leave sport, people, uh, sports people say it's like they've lost an arm or a leg or a member of the family. It feels that awful. Their mental health has been really badly affected. So I've interviewed lots of athletes who have self-harmed, uh, attempted suicide, um, taking substances to try and deal with the pain and the grief. Whereas those who were discovery, they're still discovering more things. 
So they've seen that the, the career come to an end. They think, well, that was great. What's next? So there's no sense of self. Your, 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 yourself hasn't been fractured. You carry on in a much more healthy way, I think. And I think, is that what you found when you've used that in your research? Yeah, I, I think that certainly resonates with, with my work as well. And it's easy to see how the performance narratives, how they are transmitted in the media, the way athletes are represented in the media and in sports psychology knowledge bases, just like you mentioned. So I guess my next question would be then that how what are the some of the ways that athletes can resist those dominant narratives. So if we talk of the performance narrative, and you've written a lot about that also from your personal perspective using your autoethnographic approach and very evocative stories and very personal stories. So that's also quite a brave thing to do, to put your own story out there uh, for others to, to read and, and, and think about. And you also, you certainly had strategies to resist the performance narrative and have a long career in sport without becoming subsumed under this winning is everything ideology. So how did you do that? How do others do that? I didn't know I was doing it when I was playing. <laughs> so that's the first thing. I didn't have that much wisdom and knowledge to identify the, that there was a performance narrative and it would be detrimental. But I feel very fortunate that my parents brought me up to believe that there was more than sport. So I didn't have a singular narrative. So for those of you that um, Nura mentioned the stories that I tell, and one of them is how I got into sport. And I remember the family were up in Scotland on holiday and I just finished my O-levels at school. And my father had started playing golf. And my father and I were great friends. And we played football in the back garden, tennis when Wimbledon was on, cricket when the, the cricket was on. And sport was very much part of what we did. But so was he would take us to the theatre. He was a musician and played the trumpet and the saxophone. So we did those things. He felt going to church was important. So we were taken to church. So there were lots of things that he felt was important. So we were up in Scotland and he, he took me uh, to the driving range one afternoon to hit some shots with a friend. And his friend got my sister and I hitting shots. And I didn't like it, but I did it because it was with my dad. And uh, this man said to my father, well, it's a shame Katrina didn't play when she was younger. I think she could have been quite good. So my father said, do you fancy leaving school and playing golf for a year? And this is the... the the, the thing that now, as a researcher, I recognise the seeds of different stories being planted. At the time, I didn't. He said to me, if you don't like it and you're not very good at it, you can go back and do your education. But you'll have a sport that you've played. So it can always be there. And if you like it, and you don't do really, really well, it's still a sport that you've tried out and you can still carry on with your education. And if you like golf or you're good at it and you excel, at some stage in the future, you can go back to your education and pick up. So there were no negative stories. It wasn't if you fail at golf, 
you can go and get educated. It wasn't do some education and, uh, as something to back up in case you fail at golf. So there was no failing. It was all discovery. It was all try this or that or the other, and it's your decision. So he was giving me agency and trust and worth, respecting my decision. He was giving me lots of options, and they were all good options. And education wasn't devalued and sport elevated. They were all there in the mix. And uh, I wasn't, his view was, because I was 17 <laughs> and I hadn't been playing golf, it might be good to forget the education for now, go and just do golf to see whether I could catch up. And there wasn't, I didn't have to do something. It was just, do you fancy this? And it was a conversation just going along in the car, nothing stressful. And so I said, yes, yeah, okay, I'll give it a go with, with nothing like that. And I went back to school after the summer holidays and I said to the teacher, oh, I'm leaving school at Christmas to uh, start playing professional golf. And the teacher said, well, do you, are you good at golf? Do you, have you reached that standard? It's really difficult to make in, in sport. And I said, well, I don't know. I haven't played yet. <laughs> so I dropped out of school at Christmas and started playing. But it's the seeds that were planted, not by me, by my father. And so when you ask about what do athletes need to do, we need our culture to offer us different narrative fragments that we can weave into our narrative identity, that not just one thing. So my father just didn't say, you're a bit stupid, so go and play sport. He said, yes, you'll do education, but you can't do it all of it now. Do one thing, do the, do the sport, because there'll be a day when you can't do the sport, and then do the education. So it's all valued. Um, so I think that that's something that we as a culture, we need to offer young people positive education experience you know not just oh if you fail it that there's something to fall back on which is often in the UK how education is presented when everything else fails there's your education yeah you know, it's fantastic it's liberty it's freedom that's uh, it helps you understand your life so for me um that was central and then when I started playing golf like when I was at school, we would have other things that the family did that were uh, important for our relational growth. And they were still important when I played golf. So nothing was elevated and the only thing. And I remember the first time I won the county championship, my father didn't come and watch me. And that was OK. He was playing golf himself. So it wasn't everybody watching me and every move I made. We were all doing stuff. And we played together and it was fun. You know, I, I know one of the ones, I don't know if you've read, my dad, when we, we used to play golf together, he would turn the, the handle upside down and interview me in an American accent as we go down the fairway, making fun of it. Uh, well, Katrina, you hit that one really well. Oh, this is a difficult putt you've got here. And I go, yeah, it was really difficult. But all those little things help you when you suddenly get the interview with the media. So... I think it's not just down to elite athletes. We need to provide a, an environment where we help parents understand what type of narratives and what type of stories expand someone's identity and sense of self rather than shut everything down. And 
And one more, one more story I remember when I was on tour. I can remember lots of women, friends of mine, and especially when we were girls uh, in the younger teams, they'd go off and ring their parents. And if they had a bad score, you could almost hear their pa parents say, how did you do that? You know, and it'd be the first question. It'll be about your performance. What score did you do? Where did you finish? Rather than, oh, how are you today? What have you, you know, what, what are you doing after the golf? It was all about the golf. And when they go to the golf course, everyone at the golf course says, oh, what's the next tournament? Where did you finish in the last one? And it becomes this boiling pot that the whole life, everyone's questions, their only interest seems to be on sport performance rather than all the other things that are that person that aren't sport performance. So we have a, a responsibility to ask athletes, to encourage all those other things, to fan the flames that are the, 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 the little shoots of the rest of their identity that are waiting to grow rather than just sport. Yeah, I think it's so important that your work is constantly kept bringing this perspective that you can play sport at the high level without being just the performance narrative. And I think what you already mentioned was quite important that these different narratives we tell have implications for us in terms of our mental health and well-being. And that's something that is a massive topic now in, in elite sport and sports psychology that so many athletes are struggling. So maybe we can think a little bit about, can we say that some narratives are better than some other narratives and some, some not? And obviously there are different dimensions to that. And maybe, I don't know if you thought about these different narratives, what implications they have for lifelong participation. So if you have been a performance narrative athlete in, in your youth, what I see that sometimes you have no interest in sport after you reached your peak performance. So from this lifelong participation perspective, that narrative doesn't provide us meaning after we've reached the peak, because after that you're going down the hill. So, and there's nothing to achieve because you had your best days like 15 years ago or something like that. So what's the point of sport after that? So maybe we can explore those things a little bit. Yes, I am. Um, I find a lot of people who are performance narratives say they are very competitive. So I don't feel myself as being competitive. I don't feel... Um, the need to particularly beat somebody to feel good about myself. But I know sometimes while I was on tour, occasionally a player would come up and they'd go, I beat you today. <laughs> and have a better score. And I thought, oh, good, well done. <laughs> you know, what do you want me to do about it? You know, um, I'll be checking the bank balance and how much money I want. Because it's in professional golf, for me, it's about the money. You know, I'm in there to earn a living. And the more money I earn, the better, the easier it makes life. Um, and it's very expensive to travel. So, yes, it's great to, to win trophies because that opens doors for you. So through winning, I got to do lots of things that I wouldn't be able to do had I not won. So winning is great on, on that count. But Arthur Frank, who... I was very influenced by, he's a narrative researcher. And I suppose I've learned an awful lot and my work is based on his work and you've taken our, our work on, David's and mine. And Arthur Frank, his work was with people who have cancer or his, certainly his 
early work. And he found that with cancer patients, they tend to have three different types of narrative. The first is a restitution narrative. So the medical professions, the doctors will say, we're going to try and get you back to where you used to be. So you'll get your health back. And when you have cancer, for some people, that's not possible. And if you're trying to get to somewhere and it's not possible, uh, what would happen if somebody dies and they're still trying for the next cure, trying, 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 they might not have enough time to say their goodbyes and to allow themselves to leave this world in a way that they value because their only story offered to them was we're going to try another treatment and if you don't fight cancer and battle it to the very end then uh, you're a loser you give up so the whole cultural narrative is, is cancer is a battle that we have to fight and it shows your character and often in the newspapers I see oh she fought a good fight but cancer got her in the end so uh, there was a if so there was a, a restitution narrative that was always backward looking so my future, where I want to get, is in the past. My, my present day is in the past, and my past is in the past. And I felt that dimension of Arthur Frank's work is very similar to how I hear many athletes talk about their sport career, as you said. My best days are in the past. And when fans come and meet that athlete, they only ask them about what they've done in the past, rather than... You know, I hate saying I'm a former golfer and I never use that term. <laughs> I'm not a former anything. I'm the, I'm the same me. It's trying to understand life, trying to understand my responsibilities as a human being, trying to look at the consequences of my actions and behaviour. And I hope that I was like that when I was playing golf and I hope I'm like that now in the research that I do and the way I do research. And so I'm moving forward with my life. So my, my future is in the future, and, I, and I, I hope I have a story that's going to take me forward, not a story that takes me back. So there are nuances and ways that we seem to get tra trapped, and Alec Grant talks about this narrative entrapment, whereas we get talked about and our whole lives are subsumed in a particular narrative, and it's really difficult to escape it. Because people know, know you as the golfer. And one day I was out on the cliff path here and I passed a woman and I heard her from 10 yards behind me saying, you're the golfer. <laughs> In my head, I'm thinking, no, there's more than me. There's thousands of us, millions all over the world. But what she was meaning is, I've seen you. I know who you are. So in that moment, she had cemented me in an identity that I didn't claim. I, I was a PhD student doing a doctorate at the University of Bristol. I wasn't a golfer, I, I was something else, but she had uh, named what she believed me to be. And this is what happens often to sports stars because people have seen them on television, they read about them in the newspaper and we get cemented in an identity that's really difficult to change. And that woman said, to, I said, to, um, well, actually, I'm studying now. I don't play golf anymore. And she said, what a waste 
of all that talent. So if you don't do what you're supposed to do, <laughs> then you're a waster and a loser, not, not using the talents that you've been given. And because people had said things like that to me before, and this is where I think, Nora, uh, we can help athletes um, develop a way to narrate life that can resist those narratives. I said to that woman, and I have no idea where this came from, I said, what about all the talent that was being wasted while I was playing golf? So her view of me is I had one talent and it was golf. And my view of me was I had all these different things. And if I only do one, what about all these other ones? And I don't think I've met a professional athlete that hasn't lots of skills. And we go down a particular journey and we become invested in it. And we try this for a number of years. If we can then say, well, that's not the only thing I can do. And it's not the only thing that I want to do that I can offer to my community, to my society. What about all these other things that I wasn't really nurturing while I was doing that? And if we can look for those other things and not get cemented in the one thing, I think it's, for me, it's healthier and it's more developmental. But there is a caveat in my mind because I know some golfers uh, on lane one laura davis she's a fantastic golfer and still enjoying playing golf she and i played together 30 years ago and she was enthusiastic about it then and she's still playing now so who am i to tell her that she'd maybe do something a bit healthier if she did it differently no <laughs> this whatever she's doing works for her and is fantastic but it wouldn't work for me so we have to be careful um, when we say there's a better way or there are healthier or not healthier, we need to look at the individual life and all the other things going on in that life. Yeah, I. those are some of the things I'm also asking in my research. Like if we want to be working towards changing somebody's narrative, there's always a lot of ethical problems to that. Maybe that's the authentic narrative for them. And, and there are various ways that somebody's narrative can be marginalized also by those researchers who have good intentions that we know from research that that kind of story is better than that. So how about, you know, <laughs> rethink yeah. your narrative? So it's, it's always ethically. The thing is, um, what I've learned, if we go back to narrative theory, we are born in an already unfolding story. And we are offered ways to narrate our life. And the culture that we're born into is like a reservoir. But it's, there are other reservoirs around. And hopefully as we go through what, our life, our reservoir gets bigger. When we're little children, it's a very small pool and a small vocabulary and a small set of stories. So what we always want to be with young people is feeding that pool and offering alternatives. And if you've got alternatives, they can choose which way is right for them. What we can't do is say, this is the only way and you have to do it this way. And this is the best way. Yeah. That is what I have a problem with. And what often happens with the media and with coaches and certainly historically going back it would only be one particular narrative and everyone else was silenced. 
So they either have to perform as if everything was sport or risk being dropped because somebody didn't think that they were serious. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.